You're listening, Boom, where the world comes to talk. This is Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich. Scholars have long accepted the relationship between slavery and the nature of the Southern Confederacy. But for Civil War enthusiasts, there is often no more sensitive or controversial topic. One aspect of this has been the participation of African Americans in the Confederate war effort. The latest to weigh in on the subject is our guest today, Bruce Levine, author of Confederate Emancipation, Southern Plans to Free and Arm Slaves During the Civil War. Join us for our conversation with Dr. Levine on Civil War Talk Radio. Have you let your website go stale? Wish you didn't have to wait for your web developer to return your call when you want to update content? You don't have to. Now you can easily and instantly manage your own website content using affordable Avalar technology. Avalar is a website development and hosting company that provides turnkey internet solutions for companies like yours that need to stay focused on core business. Avalar gives you the power to control your website and make updates and additions in real time without having to learn HTML or other complicated programming tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from my office on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, leaving you just for a moment here to close the office door and returning. There we go. Uh, It is a beautiful, crisp 30-degree January day in 2007 as we record this for you. Uh, But speaking, as I remind us every week, not on uh, the university's behalf, and thus any outrageous things we say can be held uh, only, the only people who can be held accountable are me and those who join me on the show. Well, it's that time of year uh, in January when, of course, the whole nation turns to sports and the big sports event of the year, the uh, Greenville uh, local youth soccer tournament. Uh, held the same weekend as the Super Bowl, which is too bad for the Super Bowl because I know it takes attention away from that event. At least it does for me as my 12-year-old's team gets ready for that. We're training the girls, getting them ready to uh, match uh, themselves against the powerhouses from Wilson and Washington and the other North Carolina teams nearby. I'll keep you uh, up to date on that as the weeks continue, but let's move on and return to the 1860s. Our topic today is uh, the title of uh, Bruce Levine's book, Confederate Emancipation and the the Movement to Free and Arm Slaves in the South. Uh, Bruce, are you there? I am. Great. Um, I guess we're having a little technical uh, 
uh, issue today. So if you can talk good and loud, that will help us. Uh, and and back at you, Jerry. I'm having a little difficult hearing you as well. All right, I'll I'll hold it right close to my mouth and scream, scream real loud. There we go. Um, well, Bruce, thanks for joining us uh, very much today. You're at the University of Illinois, I believe. That's right. Uh, tell me a little bit about your background. What what brought you there, or what what got you interested in Civil War history to begin with? Well, I've always been interested in the issues of slavery, emancipation, and how societies transform themselves as fundamentally as the United States did in the era of the Civil War. I was originally trained as a labor historian under the supervision of Herbert Gutman, and I did my doctoral dissertation on a subject that was situated in the era of the Civil War and touched on the Civil War was primarily a study of immigrant working class people and how they responded to the issues of the Civil War. And so that subject crossed issues of immigration and labor and the Civil War. And frankly, the intellectual excitement of the issues of the Civil War were so powerful that they just pulled me out of labor history and into the field of Civil War era studies. That's interesting because that there's there's a difference there in 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 your angle of approach. I would suggest with with that of a lot of people who've been on the show, uh, with my own to some extent. Many people get interested in the Civil War initially, the the romance, the uh, the, the swords and roses, romanticism of the war. Uh, initially grabs and then as they learn more about it often the approach becomes more sophisticated there's uh, a look beneath the surface but people who approach it from that angle often speak a very different language from people who do what you've done uh, to come at it from a, a historical angle that uh, as you say is based in your case in labor history but any form of social history any form of uh, a more professional historical approach uh, leads leads to speaking a different language of history almost. Does that make sense true. to you? I've certainly found myself speaking a different language from some of the people who've read my book or at least heard about my book. Well, I'm, I'm very interested in, in talking about the public reaction to that. Let's hold off on that for just a, a moment because sure. I'm sure you've gotten plenty. Um, so... What was your uh, so you said you studied with, with Herbert Gutman as in, in labor history, right? Um, and that, you were have you been at the University of Illinois? Uh, t- tell us your uh, career path, if you would. Well, uh, it's it's a long and thorny path. I was originally the director, the research director of something called the American Social History Project in the early 1980s, which eventually published the two-volume history of labor entitled Who Built America? Um, After that, I went to the University of Cincinnati and in the mid-'80s and since then have been teaching the history of the Civil War. So I've logged in about 20 years doing that. After about a decade at the University of Cincinnati, I moved to the University of California, Santa Cruz, and continued teaching the same subject to, of course, a different kind of an audience. And then just this past summer, I was invited to become the J.G. Randall Professor of History at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, 
and uh, that's where I am now, and have only been here for about a semester. Well, as our listeners uh, should certainly know, that's a real honor. Randall was, of course, J.G. Randall was the uh, the, the dean of, of Lincoln Studies in the 20th century, and uh, one of his students, David Donald, uh, went on to write a great biography of Lincoln. And I was, uh, I believe, uh, David's last doctoral student. Uh, after his retirement, I uh, sort of clung along uh, right to the very end. Interesting. Small world, isn't it? It, it is. And I, since I don't get paid for the show, I mention that I have a Harvard PhD at every opportunity <laughs> for a uh, uh, you know, psychic reward. It's all I get out of it. Uh, and a chance to talk to interesting people. Well, my PhD is not nearly as uh, as highfalutin, I'm afraid. University of Rochester. Ah, so, but from Rochester, you went. You said you you were at one point in Cincinnati, then at uh, then you were in California, now in Illinois. Yeah. And in each of those, you taught Civil War classes. Uh, how did the student response differ? Well, and Cincinnati, as you know, is on the border between uh, Ohio and. Kentucky, so we would have a number of students who were either Kentuckians or uh, had family in Kentucky. And while Kentucky was not a member of the Confederacy, um, as has frequently been said, Kentucky joined the Confederacy after Appomattox. Exactly, the posthumous member. Exactly. And so we would have, or I would have, a number of very strongly uh, uh, pro-Confederate students in the class who would respond uh, with a good deal of heat to my interpretation of the Civil War, which was that it was all about slavery, directly or indirectly. Uh, Californians, on the other hand, were less involved. One of the interesting things I discovered about Californians is no matter how recently they and their families migrated into that state, they quickly came to think of themselves as descended of a long line of Californians, and since California played no significant role in the Civil War, uh, it was a struggle to interest most of my students in the subject of the Civil War. Really? Yes, and once, however, they did get interested in it, a uh, few of them felt any particular attraction, uh, certainly to the Confederate side in the war. So it was a different political historical atmosphere in the classroom there. Are you getting a vibration from your, your students now in Illinois? Too early to tell. Um, I've only begun teaching uh, the course on the origins of the Civil War, and our students are somewhat reserved here, certainly compared to Californians, so I think it'll take time for me to get the political temperature of uh, the student body here. I'm looking forward to a lively exchange, though. I, I was just, uh, the hour before we were on, I was teaching uh, the same course here in, in eastern North Carolina. And before coming here four years ago, I was uh, working at a museum in Indiana. I taught as an adjunct at uh, uh, Indiana Purdue in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Mm-hmm. And uh, the lectures that I thought were quite even-handed when I delivered them in Indiana drew a rather sharp reaction in North Carolina, uh, it occurred to me perhaps I, I would have to rethink some of the things I was saying. Uh, but you certainly do. I, I, I can picture your students in Cincinnati, uh, the, the crossed arms on the chest, the pen put down by the side of the notebook, uh, the stare. 
that implies, uh, all right, this Yankee has is, is, is gone off the rails. I'm not listening to any more of this. Precisely right. Uh, and uh, I, I've had occasion to speak in some of the once Confederate states, and on some occasions have had that reaction as well. Not so long ago, in fact, even on the subject of this book at the UNC Charlotte. Uh, my my colleague here, Charles Calhoun, tells me when you, if you use the phrase "so-called" before Confederacy, as as was done uh, during the war, uh, you can get a pretty good reaction out of audiences uh, in the old South. Uh, I haven't tried it yet myself, uh, fearing for my safety, I guess. Well, I, if if I if I did use it, it was in error. Uh, uh, I meant to say former members or once members of the Confederacy. Yes, but it it does work. Uh, no, I'm suggesting it does work well if you want to try it sometime. Oh, I see what you're uh, saying. If you just want to give somebody a poke. <laughs> uh, yeah, with a subject like mine, I need to poke the audience often, as you can imagine. I, I, indeed. Well, let's let's talk about this. So you, your book, Confederate Emancipation, addresses an issue that uh, really could not be hotter in terms of, of what the Civil War... Uh, popular Civil War studies community is interested in. Uh, what, what brought you to that topic itself? Well, I'd always, uh, since my early studies of the Civil War, uh, held the view that this was a war brought on by and centrally defined by the issue of slavery. But at an early point in those studies, way back in undergraduate school, I came across Patrick Claiborne's document. Um, advocating uh, emancipation, in his terms, of those slaves who would be willing to fight on behalf of the Confederacy, a proposal he advanced, as you know, at the end of 1863, beginning of 1864. Uh, and I'd always wondered how such a proposal could have come out of a Confederacy dedicated to the proposition that uh, black people ought to be enslaved and put to work for white people. And uh, if that was indeed the purpose of the Confederacy, to preserve that system, what sense did it make to make this proposal? And, of course, my interest was even sharpened when I discovered that a year after Claiborne made that proposal, the Confederate government adopted some version of that idea. So it seemed clear to me that I needed to go more deeply into this subject to make sense of it. So, at, at that time, did you have any idea that this that, that people would care quite deeply about this topic? Well, not really. This began as simply one in a series of classroom lectures that I gave in my Civil War course in Cincinnati. I was plugging a hole in my lecture series. I had to finally say something uh, on this subject, and it, uh, that was the late 1980s, and I was not yet deeply involved in following uh, public debates, modern public debates, that is, about uh, the echoes of the Civil War. So I was sort of innocent of the modern implications of all of this when I set about trying to clarify the issue in my own mind and for the uh, benefit of my students. As time went on, of course, it became more and more obvious uh, that this issue bore upon the other issue, the so-called, and I'll say that in italics and 
underline and in bold the so-called black confederates issue. The allegation that throughout the Civil War, a large number of black southerners voluntarily fought and fought loyally, arms in hand, on behalf of the confederates. Well, let me see if I can... In, in line with that, let me pull this out. I may have even read it last week, but I'll just read a paragraph of this. This appeared in the Greenville, North Carolina Daily Reflector on January 19th. It was a little ad uh, underneath the uh, uh, stained glass center ad and above the uh, Kenilworth gift store ad. It's a picture of uh, Robert E. Lee labeled Happy Birthday, General Lee. It was on his birthday. Uh-huh. And where's the line I want to quote for you? Um, it has a, a paragraph giving Lee's history. Uh, here we are. Um, Though the Confederate Army was vastly outnumbered and outresourced, they fought four long years to preserve what this country was once founded on, states' rights and small government. The soldiers that served in the Confederate Army were white, black, Native American, and Hispanic. They fought to protect kin and kindred, home and property, from the ravages of northern invasion. The sponsors of the ad, you will not be surprised to, to learn, are is the local chapter of the Sons of Confederate Veterans. Right. Um, but that line, uh, uh, that the Confederate Army was made up of uh, white, black, Native American, and Hispanic soldiers, uh, doesn't say in equal measure, but there's perhaps an implication there. Uh is, is I think what, you, what that ties on what you're talking about the right. the idea that there were many black Confederate soldiers. That's right. There are there are as you may know already a number of volumes in print um, that contain allegations that were and that there were upward of thirty thousand, sixty thousand, seventy thousand, a hundred thousand, by implication two hundred thousand. Uh, uh, black Southerners fighting, and I emphasize that word, fighting, in combat soldiers in the ranks of the Confederacy. Uh, with, well, uh, we're going to take a short break here uh, and come back in just a minute. This is a good place to catch our breath. We'll return in a moment with Bruce Levine, author of Confederate Emancipation, in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. According to the Sons of Confederate Veterans, the soldiers that served in the Confederate Army were white, black, Native American, and Hispanic. What was this Rainbow Coalition doing in the 1860s? Or did it exist at all? We'll find out when we talk with our guest Bruce Levine, author of Confederate Emancipation on Civil War Talk Radio. You got a small business? Well, then you know how tough it can be. You know, marketing, finding new customers, and especially just staying focused on the day-to-day details of running your business. Well, even though my business was doing okay, it wasn't where I knew it could be. I was getting a bit discouraged. Then I heard about this little book called Growing Your Business by Mark LeBlanc. Wow, I still can't figure out how such a small book could make such a big difference in my business. It only took about an hour to read, and the things I learned, well, all I can say is I'll be using Mark's ideas for a long time to come. Why? Why? Because they work. 
I learned how to really focus on what I need to do to attract more customers and how to be more successful by creating a plan for generating more business. I guess that's why Mark named his website smallbusinesssuccess.com. Clever, huh? Small Business Success. That's it. If you want to be more successful with your business, and who doesn't, you should check out Mark LeBlanc's website at smallbusinesssuccess.com. You'll find Mark's books and lots of other resources for growing your business. smallbusinesssuccess.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Bruce Levine, author of Confederate Emancipation, Southern Plans to Free and Arm the Slaves. In our first segment, we talked about uh, uh, the background of this story, and we're just touching on the, the current in the early 21st century, current uh, story, myth, uh, legend, uh, urban legend, folktale, idea that there were many, many African Americans who fought actively for the Confederacy. Uh, Dr. Levine, uh, Bruce, where did that come from, that, that idea that there were lots of black soldiers? Well, it, ca- it came from, in my opinion, it comes from the desire to... Uh, redraw the map of the Civil War and to depict the Confederate Army as something other than what it was and to depict this Confederate cause as something other than what it was. If you can uh, make the argument and put it over that uh, large numbers of black Southerners cheerfully and voluntarily uh, joined the Confederate Army, you can advance further the claim that the Confederate war effort was not about slavery, but was about, on the contrary, simply the defense of the South, a cause that attracted support of all who lived in the South, regardless of race or legal status. Um, And I think uh, that, therefore, the claim that there were huge numbers of black Confederate soldiers is designed precisely to serve that end. Now, as, as far as I know, there's no substantial evidence for that, but there is, uh, but you started your research with, with Patrick Claiborne's proposal of 1864 that the South should free its slaves. Correct. Uh, let's talk about what, what you present in your book, uh, the history of this idea of Confederate emancipation. Uh, who was Claiborne and, and what happened to his idea? Well, Patrick Claiborne was a probably the best division commander in the Army of Tennessee, the Confederacy's second principal army in the field, and the principal Confederate army, of course, in the western theater of war between the Appalachians and the Mississippi. He himself was uh, an Irish Protestant by birth, uh, came to the United States after a stint in the British Army, settled in Arkansas, became an attorney, member of the Southern Democratic Party, And when Arkansas joined the Confederacy, he joined the Confederate Army as a private soldier. He proved extremely talented, very able, very courageous, very bright, a quick student, and moved up the ranks rapidly uh, until he became a division commander. By uh, the end of 1863, after the Confederate Army of Tennessee was routed, outside Chattanooga, uh, Claiborne 
began to ruminate on what the future of the Confederacy was and what it was going to take to reverse the obviously declining military fortunes of the Confederacy by that point. And took some time doing this, and in his headquarters during December of 1863, and drawing on the skills he'd obviously developed as an attorney, drew up what amounted to a lengthy brief on behalf of this proposal that the Confederacy ought to offer freedom not only to those slaves who would be willing to fight on behalf of their Confederacy, but also to their families, uh, and the right to remain within an independent Confederacy should this uh, policy serve to allow the Confederacy to uh, achieve its independence and preserve that independence. Well, that would uh, that would do a lot for the Confederacy, obviously, uh, if you did that. It certainly would have, considering that one of the major problems the Confederacy faced, of course, throughout the war, was that it did not contain nearly enough military-aged, uh, able uh, uh, white men to cope with the supply of northern whites and blacks who were joining the Union Army as the military record was making painfully clear by the end of 1863. After all, uh, by that time, Vicksburg had fallen, Lee had been uh, rebuffed at Gettysburg, and uh, a number of other developments had taken place that proved the point, Chattanooga not least of them. So that would increase the southern manpower pool dramatically, it would also presumably cut into the uh, what turns out to be 180,000 African Americans who served the North. Right. Uh, one can imagine, at least, that some might be might prefer to serve their own state, their own home, if that would bring about the promise of freedom. And Claiborne says precisely that in this fascinating memorandum. He argues that doing this will not only strengthen the Confederate Army numerically. It will also uh, undercut the Union's ability to recruit uh, any additional uh, uh, black soldiers, probably undermine the resolve of those blacks already serving in the Union Army, undercut the claims of the Union that it was fighting for uh, uh, emancipation and freedom while the South was fighting for slavery, since here would the South be uh, offering slavery on its own terms, and furthermore, uh, therefore, weaken the union union's claims on the uh, uh, on the sentiments of European observers, and therefore perhaps facilitate the Confederacy's attempt to uh, obtain the active support of Britain and France in the Civil War. Well, with all this going for it, surely uh, the people who heard Claiborne read this in 1864 leaped up uh, applauding, and it was put into action at once. Well, isn't that exactly one of the many interesting aspects of this story? It's an extremely well-written proposal. Um, it's very persuasive. He says a number of other things that we should talk about at some point as well uh, concerning what the uh, previous experience of the Confederacy has been with slavery and with its own black population and why those experiences also point uh, toward the uh, necessity of taking this step. So he presents this proposal at a night meeting of the general officers of the army, and basically the roof falls in on him, uh, with very, very few exceptions, notably um, a longtime friend and 
political associate of his from his Arkansas days, um, he runs into a wall, uh, to mix metaphors, and uh, he's denounced as being disloyal to the South, or at least misunderstanding what the South is all about. Very heated exchange, evidently. Um, and uh, so heated is it that Claiborne withdraws his proposal. A copy of that proposal is nonetheless sent along to uh, the Jefferson Davis government in Richmond, something that uh, Claiborne had uh, intended to do anyway if, as he hoped, his fellow officers had come to support his policy. But instead, one of the officers who's most incensed at this proposal takes it upon himself on, and on his own hook to would send that uh, proposal along to Davis. And Davis uh, then brings it to his cabinet, which resoundingly rejects the proposal again. And furthermore, instructs Joseph Johnson, who had recently uh, become commander of this army, to uh, shut the discussion down and to prevent the further circulation of the memorandum. Now, you hinted there were some other things in the proposal uh, about African-American uh, activities or, or, or their status in the South. What, what else did he say? Well, and this gets back to the subject of how uh, black Southerners felt about the Confederacy and the Civil War. It's interesting to me that Claiborne today is frequently pointed to with pride by groups like the Sons of Confederate Veterans as an exemplar of what they think uh, the war and the Confederate war effort was about. But this memorandum on, uh, uh, that Claiborne wrote says specifically that one of the tremendous weaknesses that the Confederacy is suffering uh, during the war is the fact that its black population, its slave population, clearly shows no support for the Confederate war effort. On the contrary, slaves are abandoning their masters whenever Union forces come close enough to make that attempt seem even uh, remotely possible. And indeed, joining the Confederate—sorry, uh, joining the Union army—and then, in Claiborne's words, fighting successfully and bravely on behalf of their Union officers and against their former masters. So in other words, what Claiborne is saying is not only are we being outnumbered on the battlefield and losing this war militarily, slavery itself is dissolving and far from being the kind of strength that we hoped it would prove to be at the beginning of the Civil War, it is proving a positive source to weakness of our, uh, to ourselves and a positive source of strength for our enemies. And that was one of the problems that Claiborne hoped to answer with his own proposal. During in 1862, uh, Abraham Lincoln called a delegation of Kentucky slaveholders into the White House to try to convince them to accept, in principle, the idea of compensated emancipation. Right. And he told them, in so many words, you might as well accept this because the the mere friction and abrasion of war uh, is, is eroding the institution anyway. Exactly. And yet the Kentucky slaveholders absolutely refused. They, they had no interest in this proposal. These are Union slaveholders. Yeah, you're, uh, you're making a very apt parallel here. And, and my point is that they refused clearly on uh, on economic grounds. They, they were not losing their slaves in the same way that the Confederate owners are. Uh, they just They just couldn't conceive of it. 
uh, and yet they're not even fighting against the union. Why do the rebel slaveholders refuse to even consider this proposal? Well, I think what your parallel successfully captures is the really mind-bending stubbornness of slaveholders of the South generally, both within the Confederacy but also within Union Kentucky. Uh, stubborn opposition to any form of emancipation. It's what Claiborne runs into in the South, but it's what Lincoln ran into in Kentucky. It's worth remembering that Lincoln never did succeed in prying the so-called loyal slaveholders' fingers loose from their property uh, before legislation and constitutional amendments finally forced the issue or a coalition of anti-slavery forces within their states united under Republican Party leadership did that. Um, so I think that's one of the outstanding and most dramatic aspects of this story is that slaveholders in general refused to part with their slaves. They refused to part with their slaves in the Confederacy right down to the last minute, fought tooth and nail against the adoption even of the most watered-down version of Claiborne's proposal. Then when... Davis and Lee attempted to implement the proposal that had become enacted, resisted that as well. It's quite striking, and it was something that I was unaware of until I began to investigate. But your earlier question is, what were they fighting to preserve? And I think they were fighting to preserve uh, what their commonly used phrase was, a way of life, but a way of life based both on white supremacy and a white supremacy that they considered was crucially anchored in the enslavement of the black population. A way of life also that gave them a cheap supply of labor that therefore allowed them to amass tremendous amounts of wealth and as large-scale owners of slaves to enjoy the many economic, social, cultural, political benefits that went with that wealth. And they simply, it seems, could not imagine any other form of life or any other way of being. Now, I was just talking with my class today about the Southern class structure before the war, and uh, we were discussing the percentage of Southerners, white Southerners who owned slaves or belonged to slaveholding families, and estimates are in the 25-30% range, as I understand it. Yep. Most white Southerners don't own slaves. So... What you're saying makes sense, that those who do can't imagine life without it, but they're not a majority. How, how is it that Davis and his government can reject this proposal uh, if slaveholders are only a minority in that society? Well, again, a very good question, and I think the answer points to another way in which this whole story illuminates this key, yet another key fact of life in the South and in the Confederacy, which is to say that the three-quarters, or most of the three-quarters, of southern white families who owned no slaves were nonetheless enlisted in support, de facto, of slavery because, among other things, of their complete investment in the subordination of the black population, in white supremacy, in the inequality, both before the law and in any and every other way, of blacks and whites, and they had been successfully told by the slave owners and their advocates that that world, the entire world of white supremacy, would collapse if the pillar of slavery were knocked out from under it, 
that the enslavement of the black population was a crucial prop of white supremacy in general, and that in turn is what underlay their own political rights, their own uh, economic prosperity, such as it was, their own culture, their own, if you will, way of life. And so powerful was that link, and so effectively was the link between slavery and white supremacy made that it held, as Gary Gallagher demonstrates in his book, The Confederate War, it held most of the white South together throughout four long, brutal years of war. We'll take another break at this point, uh, another good place to pause in a very interesting conversation with today, Bruce Levine author of Confederate Emancipation. We'll be back in just a few moments on Civil War Talk Radio. political opposition, Jefferson Davis's government did pass legislation to emancipate some slaves in 1865. What would have happened if they had done so earlier? We'll find out from our guest Bruce Levine, author of Confederate Emancipation, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. It's the one level playing field in business, the Internet. It's where an artisan working out of a small shop can look bigger than a multinational corporation. But to achieve this level of visibility, your company's website needs a developer who knows the net and how to make it work. Your company needs Apsio. Apsio's success comes from producing websites that reflect the attitudes and uniqueness of their respective organizations. Make a great first impression on the web. Choose Apsio, A-P-S-Y-O. For more info, visit www.apsio.com. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Bruce Levine, author of Confederate Emancipation. In our last segment, we were discussing what happened when Patrick Claiborne of the Army of Tennessee proposed emancipation for slaves willing to fight for the South, them and their families. And uh, the response of uh, military and civil leaders was overwhelmingly negative. But, Bruce, as uh, our listeners know, though, uh, certainly by the very end of the war, the Confederate government had moved toward the direction of some limited emancipation. What changed? Well, one of the things that changed was that the military situation, very serious when Claiborne wrote, and which had become somewhat alleviated during the six to eight months immediately following it, uh, then became even worse uh, by the end of 1864. The fall of Atlanta, the battles of Franklin and uh, Nashville, the uh, re-election of Abraham Lincoln, decisively after the fall of Atlanta proved to the northern population that the Union was, in fact, winning the war. The decisive re-election, in other words, of a northern government bent on carrying emancipation through to the end and equally bent on the unconditional uh, 
surrender of the South, apparently capable, judging by its battlefield successes, of enforcing that uh, kind of a peace, finally drove the Davis regime in November, December of 1864 to reconsider its opposition to Coburn's proposal and instead to embrace it. And, and Davis makes a speech hinting at such a course in November while some of his allies in the Confederate Congress begin introducing various versions of the idea in the form of resolutions and legislation in the House and Senate. The, uh, in, in all the, the talk we've had so far today, we've talked about this from the point of view of the Confederate government or the Confederate slaveholders, why they propose it, why they reject it. Um, let, let's shift perspectives for a moment and look at it from the, the view of those actually held in slavery. If Claiborne's proposal had been accepted uh, immediately, or any such proposal had been, had been accepted, what is your view as to how African Americans in the South would have responded? Would they have taken up arms? Well, I think it's even more interesting, if you permit me to stretch your question a sure. bit, it's even more interesting to ask, what would have happened if Jefferson Davis had accepted the idea when it was made to him verbally in the summer of 1861 by Richard Ewell, uh, instead of dismissing it as uh, out of hand as uh, an expression of virtual madness? If Davis had um, accepted the idea, excuse me, <clears throat> accepted the idea in 1861 and been able to persuade his fellow. Uh, politicians in Richmond to accept the idea and indeed offered an uh, 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 emancipation to uh, southern slaves in the period, let's remember, when the Lincoln administration was doing nothing of the kind, was fighting, it said, only to reconstitute the Union and was not only refusing to emancipate slaves, but uh, its army was indeed returning fugitive slaves to uh, Confederate officers demanding that return in the name of the Fugitive Slave Law. If Davis at that point had accepted the notion, it seems to me reasonable to assume that some significant portion of the southern black population would have said, we will serve whoever offers us uh, the closest approximation to freedom, and if that's Davis, we will go with Davis. I, I guess you could draw an analogy as to what happened during the American Revolution. Exactly when you see lots of African-Americans uh, serving the British cause because they were offered freedom for doing so. Exactly right. Now, uh, what was Ewell thinking, by the way, uh, to make such an offer in 1861? Well, I think Ewell was thinking about it. We don't really know very much about uh, how far Ewell thought this through and how, uh, how far he pursued the logical implications of what he was suggesting. He was simply, uh, uh, I think, reflecting... Uh, soberly on what the immediate future was likely to uh, hold for the Confederacy and how difficult this conflict was going to be and what the odds were against its victory should it not take up the weapon of uh, black enlistment and black emancipation. I think at this point it's probably Davis who's thinking more uh, uh, consistently than Ewell about, I'll never get anybody to accept this notion. No one is going to go for this with any political clout. Um, it will do more harm to the political unity of the Confederacy than it will do good, and I'm not even going to raise this idea. 
which is basically the same uh, viewpoint he stands by two years later when Patrick Claiborne raises it, of course. So yeah. the, the argument, uh, as you see it, is that the South, the white South, is, is firmly wedded to a system of racial hierarchy that is just allows no room for for emancipation and the equality that would would necessarily follow from from arming and using slaves in battle, uh, but they are pushed to that extreme by 1865. Yes, even then it's very difficult. When Davis uh, uh, raises his trial balloon on this idea, <clears throat> he then runs into the kind of hail of criticism that, uh, but on a much larger scale, that Claiborne had encountered in 1863, 1864, when he raised the notion in the Army of Tennessee, and. Uh, the reaction that, that Davis encounters demonstrates that you don't have to have a great deal of imagination to try to calculate what the great mass of Southern slave owners are thinking on this subject because they spell it out in so many words, in speeches, pamphlets, uh, editorials, letters to the editor, and so forth, memoirs, uh, personal letters at the time. What if, however... In spite of all the opposition, the plan goes through by some mischance of history that, that we can't even imagine. Uh, the siege of Petersburg goes on uh, into the summer of 1865. Substantial numbers of African Americans do join the Southern armies, and uh, we, we see a repeat of the sort of miracle of the Revolution. The tiny army of Valley Forge defeats the, the mighty British army. Uh, Somehow the North gets tired of it all. The South wins with an emancipated, partially emancipated black labor force. Uh, this is a, high, you know, a counterfactual question, but, but what do you see uh, the South looking like after such a war? Well, I think, I think they're, 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 that's, a, that's a great question. Um, if I can split it into two. Yes. Um, what, what, uh, what was the possibility of this happening? And then, as you say, Supposing that it had happened, what would the upshot have been? One of the big obstacles to it succeeding was, uh, and I just want to shoehorn this point in here before our time is up, was the fact that the proposal that finally passes through the Confederate legislature and is enacted into law actually frees nobody. It does not give the Confederate government the power to emancipate anyone. It gives the Confederate government the power to compel no master to emancipate a slave. It simply invites slave owners to emancipate some slaves and then invites those emancipated slaves to volunteer for the army. Uh, so it's, it's, it's entirely a volunteer proposition, which is one reason why it is such a dismal failure. And Davis, uh, when prodded by Lee at some point to force the issue upon the slave owners, refuses to do that. But let's assume nonetheless that somehow everybody volunteered. The masters, contrary to the fact, volunteer their slaves. The slaves, contrary to the record, go for this by that point um, and do indeed serve. And then we have a successful uh, Confederate war effort. Well, I think the, the ramifications are enormous. The possible consequences are enormous here. The preservation of slavery on a large scale in an independent Confederacy um, I was thinking about this before the uh, before the radio program, 
and realizing that previously I hadn't even thought about some of the other consequences uh, because they would almost certainly have included uh, a tremendous crisis for the Republican Party in the Union and the shift of political power in what remained of the Union back into the hands of the Democratic Party. Very likely the failure of the 13th Amendment to the Constitution on that basis, not to mention the 14th and 15th Amendments to the Constitution, so that slavery might have remained legal not only in the Confederacy, where it certainly would have, but also in Kentucky and Missouri and Maryland, and very likely a Jim Crow system not only there, but throughout at least the states of the lower north, including uh, the states of the Midwest. I think not only would this have meant the survival of slavery, at least through the end of the 19th century, certainly in the Confederacy, possibly in portions of the United States, but the next stage of the struggle, the achievement of civil rights for former slaves, would have been drastically set back by the remaining division of the United States into two parts and uh, the conservatization of the Union by uh, the consequences of the defeat in the Civil War. Uh, it, it's uh, a, a frightening prospect, the, uh, uh, the idea that one might go on eBay today and find uh, laborers for sale. Absolutely. We're running short on time, but I have to ask you this. Uh, what kind of reaction has your book gotten uh, uh, from, from different audiences? Well, in general, it's gotten, I'm happy to say, um, a very positive response. I'm told by my publisher that sales have been good. It was picked up by a series of book clubs uh, whose sales have been good. It's gotten a lot of very generous reviews. But some of those reviews carried in uh, uh, newspapers like the Washington Post uh, in drawing out the implications of the book and pointing out that it undercuts claims that the war was not about slavery undercuts claims that there were huge numbers of black Confederate soldiers has provoked the ire of diehard uh, defenders of the reputation of the Confederacy. And anybody anxious to see what they think about the war can just go to Amazon.com and look for my book and then find the uh, fire-eating reactions of people to it. In some cases, it seems... Uh, reactions on the part of people who haven't read the book but think they know what the book must say. Well, there's there's no need to actually read books, it seems to me. That, yeah, that's exactly. uh, when you can just go on Amazon and read what other people think and then agree with them. Exactly, exactly. Uh, very good. Well, uh, well, I, I must urge all our listeners to go to Amazon or your local, better still, your local independent bookstore and uh, get yourself a copy of Confederate Emancipation, Southern Plans to Free and Arm Slaves During the Civil War by Bruce Levine. I was asked by North and South Magazine to do a little uh, summary of the most important books of 2006, and uh, this book certainly made that list uh, of the top five books that, if you're going to read out of the, the hundreds of Civil War books, this is one I think everyone ought to take a look at. Thank you, Jerry. That's very generous of you. Well, it's an important book. It's an important topic. Uh, anyone who's involved in Civil War sooner or later will have a conversation with someone who says, well, it's not all about slavery. Don't you know the South had a lot of uh, black soldiers or the slaves would have fought for the South uh, and so on. The, the South emancipated its slaves. 
and sometimes you're just at a loss. Uh, it's not usually worth arguing too much with such uh, people. You're not going to change a lot of minds. But it helps to be armed in such a conversation, and this book uh, supplies some very uh, solid uh, factual background and some interesting intellectual constructs that support, uh, I would argue, a more enlightened view of what actually happened. Uh, any new projects Civil War related on the table? Well, I'm now working on a book that uh, looks further into something, of course, a big issue that I came across while working on this one, and that is how the destruction of the Confederacy and the dissolution was experienced at the time by members of the different uh, sections of the Confederate population, the large planters, the small slaveholders, the large majority of non-slaveholding whites, the urban population, the free black population, and of course the enslaved population. And to weld that into one continuous narrative of an, an analysis of how the most powerful slave-owning society of the 19th century uh, broke down and disappeared, and how that was felt by the people involved in that dramatic story. Well, that, that sounds uh, very promising. Certainly, uh, to the extent that the the South, the White South, as, as you argue in, in Confederate Emancipation, was wedded to the concept of uh, a racial hierarchy. Um, to the extent that that hierarchy survives the war, you can argue that uh, they, they didn't quite lose it after all. That's right. I, I, that's, that's why I think it's fair to look upon. Uh, this debate that occurs in the last six months of the Confederacy on so-called Confederate emancipation uh, as a dress rehearsal for, uh, by the Confederate elite and its supporters outside the elite in an era when it cannot have slavery but wants to retain white supremacy. And the proposals that make the rounds in private correspondence in this period, how are we going to keep and formally free blacks under our control, uh, do indeed inform uh, southern policy, southern state policy following the Civil War. Well, we will look forward to seeing that book come out. Uh, Bruce, thank you so much for taking time to uh, come on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a thorough pleasure. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs>